Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. For the last week, massive protests have swept across the large Central Asian country of Kazakhstan. The spark was a decision by the government to increase fuel prices in the country, which is a major fuel producer. But, as my guests today explain, though the fuel price hike was the proximate cause of the protests, they are in fact rooted in deep and widespread disaffection with Kazakhstan's ruling class. Since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Kazakhstan has been ruled more or less by a single man, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. He stepped down as president three years ago, paving the way for his hand-picked successor, President Tokayev. However, Nazarbayev remains a key power in Kazakhstan. The situation remains fluid. As I'm recording this, there are reports that Russia has sent troops to Kazakhstan to bolster the government. The conversation you are about to hear was recorded in the afternoon of January 5th and does an excellent job providing the context to help you understand these events in Kazakhstan as they unfold. You will hear from Dr. Erika Marat, a professor at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C., Dr. Diana T. Kudai-Berginova, a professor at the University of Cambridge, and Dr. Jen Brick Murta Zashvili of the University of Pittsburgh. We recorded our conversation live via Twitter spaces, and a few thousand people tuned in. Uh, just to set the context for one brief interruption in the narrative, early in the conversation, I noticed that Dr. Tedros, the Director General of the World Health Organization, was in the audience listening. I invited him to ask a question of our panelists, but he wrote me later saying he'd prefer to listen. So, so you'll hear that brief interruption early in the conversation. Uh, the episode came together at the very last minute, literally about five minutes before we began is when I secured all three panelists. And a huge thank you to each of them. Uh, they're obviously in very high demand this week, so I appreciate their time. Uh, this episode ends when my questions to the panelists conclude, uh, but they did stick around to take some questions from the audience. If you're so inclined, you can find the audience question and answer session in my Twitter feed at Mark L. Goldberg. Now to kick off this conversation is Dr. Erica Murat. Enjoy. I suspect you'll find this conversation very useful as events in Kazakhstan unfold over the coming days and weeks. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
I'd like to start with the premise that I am not from Kazakhstan. I'm from Kyrgyzstan, but I've been observing developments in Kazakhstan and Central Asia at large um, as my professional uh, career and uh, specifically uh, specialize in um, security structures and former Soviet space. So uh, what we saw in Kazakhstan uh, was both surprising uh, at the scale and uh, intensity that the events and mobilization unfolded. But at the same time, for many Kazakhstan observers, this was not something uh, entirely unexpected. Uh, the protest moves and grievances have been percolating in Kazakhstan for years now, if not uh, for over a decade. And uh, various poles of activism have been unfolding in um, Western Kazakhstan, oil-rich Western Kazakhstan, where the population is uh, impoverished and unable to benefit from the energy resources of Kazakhstan but also in urban areas. Um, and the grievances range from economic underdevelopment, inequality, uh, corruption, kleptocracy, uh, how the very top of Kazakhstan, uh, Kazakhstan's regime really benefits um, and is able to become filthy rich. Really, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars um, type of um, elites. Uh, whereas on the other hand, um, there is a whole range of economic grievances in uh, rural areas, especially uh, where people can't afford um, can't afford much, um, even you know even daily substance uh, food and um and fuel so so that was uh, the context in which the, the government context. decided to impose an apparently onerous hike in the cost of the fuel that's used to you know in, in everyday uses like to drive cars and and heat homes yes but this was just um this was just one uh, random reason. And uh, to be honest, uh, spontaneous protests are hard to predict specifically because um, in the sea of grievances, uh, there's, you know, percolating grievances, um, anything, any kind of event, any uh, kind of development could have uh, sparked this fire. Um, and it happened to be prices for fuel um, that first mobilized a small group of people, but then uh, resonated with um, other cities, other people who share uh, somewhat um, aligning grievances, economic or political, but not necessarily uh, fuel prices. So, and quickly this protest uh, turned um, from um, prices for fuel to something much bigger. And where did the protests begin. I mean, Kazakhstan is a vast country. And I think one thing that has surprised me as, you know, just an outside observer, a journalist who covers global affairs more more generally was how quickly uh, these protests seem to have spread uh, across the country. Can you just maybe like walk us through a brief timeline of where these uh, protests began and, and what we know about how they spread? So they started a few days ago um, in Mangistau, I believe. But uh, those uh, who are based in Kazakhstan, please uh, feel free to correct me. Um, and then uh, they they stayed there for a few days, and we saw some coverage um, of uh, of the protest. But um, they really spread across uh, the country in the last. Uh, 36 to 48 hours um, when um, the people started joining uh, 
because of just general uh, broader economic grievances um, from uh, mostly from Western Kazakhstan uh, and then also in urban areas. And I'd like to highlight also one important point that my uh, colleagues from Kazakhstan made this morning in our conversation is um, that uh, the protests in uh, urban areas in Almaty and uh, North Sultan, they seem to be um, more disorganized and more chaotic compared to Western parts of the country where, um, and again, I'm stating my colleagues uh, who say that uh, the uh, the uh, labor unions and uh, local um, population laborers and workers they are more accustomed to protesting and they have a better experience in communicating their grievances and requirements and actually um, talking to local government uh, than what we see in urban areas and they're more, much more organized in that sense as well in the western Kazakhstan so in rural areas mm. uh, and let me just uh, pause quickly and note that I see Dr. Tedros the executive the director general of the World Health Organization is listening in on this. Dr. Tedros, I've invited you to become a speaker. If you have a question uh, for any of our panelists, feel free to jump in if you'd like. Um, what do we know about who these protests are? Um, is there like a discernible element of, of society? It's um, If we speak broadly, if we take really um, a... Um, a broad look at it, it's, uh, it, we can say that it's an overlap of economic grievances and political grievances. It started as an economic grievance for uh, fuel prices, um, and then it turned into something bigger, into um, demands for changes in the political system and better representation, the parliamentary representation and uh, uh, local government representation. Um, in terms of forms of organization, as I said, uh, there are better organized uh, labor unions in Western Kazakhstan in urban areas areas. Uh, we do see um, activists from the more younger generation uh, who uh, turned into a movement uh, in the spring 2019 when Nazarbayev stepped down, so Oyan Kazakhstan, uh, who demand uh, political transformation of Kazakhstan. But at the same time, we also see the um, lower middle class and working class uh, coming to cities from neighboring uh, provinces and uh, becoming a more um, disorganized, more chaotic force. Um, and it, it, at this point, I think it's really fair to say that it's a it's a leaderless protest. But in the last thirty six hours, we see some uh, demands crystallizing um, on the streets and uh, in conversations. But uh, they're nowhere to be this unified force with which the government can talk. And that's also, of course, a dilemma for the current regime that is trying to contain the protest by any means possible. Uh, there's no like sort of discernible leadership. Is there like a coherent set of demands that has been articulated? Yeah, it really depends uh, who you talk to. If you talk to Oyan Kazakhstan uh, in Almaty or in North Sultan, they will have quite an elaborate list, articulate list of what they want, how they want to see Kazakhstan, an open, uh, inclusive political system with a strong parliament, if not parliamentary republic. If you talk to um, labor unions in uh, northern, in Western Kazakhstan, it is also a um, a, a coherent set of requests uh, for better working conditions, more um, fair system of employment, um, 
and uh, better economic development. But if um, I suspect, and again, I want to premise this by that I'm not in Kazakhstan right now, uh, but if you talk to maybe um, a uh, more random person who is not who is not part of any larger political movement or organization, then it will the list of demands will perhaps be uh, on a broader range and less uh, articulated. Um, what has been the result, or pardon me, the response of the government so far? How have they responded to these protests? I know, for example, you know, internet has been cut uh, in much of Kazakhstan, which I think is unfortunately limiting the ability of people in Kazakhstan uh, right now to participate. Though if I am mistaken, please request to speak. I'd love to hear from you. Um, how would you characterize the government's response so far? So, um, first of all, I, I see that Diana Kudaybergenova now part of this conversation, so it would be great to hear from her as well. Um, so, the government, I, I, from, my, from my observations, uh, has been making lots of mistakes, and it's really puzzling to me how a government, uh, such a robust government with robust institutions and able to... Uh, understand and monitor the society, the social and political trends in society was make is making such uh, the, the type of mistakes that we see that leaders like Yanukovych in Ukraine or uh, Lukashenko in uh, Belarus were taking, basically underestimating the um, the aggressiveness, or not the aggressiveness, but the determination, um, the determination of the protesters, uh, um, and uh, choosing a forceful response uh, by then also escalating the dynamics with the protesters. And this is a very, it's a very well known, um, uh, you know, causal um, influence. It's part of the playbook. It's, yeah. No, no, no. What, what I'm trying to yeah. say that for social scientists, it's very well known that when there is a huge protest, uh, if the government uh, meets meets those protests with forceful um, uh, response, then protests are likely to backfire and become even uh, bigger in scale, more radicalized. And it seems like post-Soviet autocrats just have not read this literature or not aw- not aware of this calculus. So Tokayev, uh, Nazarbayev, they have been making very similar mistakes that I saw take um, happen. In, in Ukraine in 2013 and 14, and in uh, Belarus um, in 2020, when the forceful response just escalates and radicalizes more people into protest. Uh, so I'd like to bring uh, Dr. Diana T. Kudabai Garnova into the conversation. Uh, Doctor, could you just please introduce yourself uh, briefly so we can all hear your voice and uh, I'd love to get your perspective. What are you hearing from your friends, colleagues, contacts in Kazakhstan right now? Hi, and thank you for the for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here. My name is Dr. Diana Kudelbergenova. I'm a political sociologist um, here in Cambridge. And well, yeah, um, I'm, I've been working on contentious politics and regimes in, in that region for a very long time. What I'm hearing, um, and uh, well, when, when it all erupted, basically, because I, I did do... Um, sort of digital fieldwork um, on protests on the Kazakh Spring um, since the 2019 when it erupted. I've been very much connected to, to all sorts of activists and uh, protesters from Oyan, Kazakhstan, from what uh, Erika just mentioned. And I've been hearing quite a lot of different perspectives. I've been on Telegram for the past few days, just reading certain chats and just, you know, exploring different things. Um, there was a lot of sort of 
um, solidarity with Jean Aujen with, with what happened in the beginning um, in the beginning of the protest. And I think what a lot of um, just not just the regime but also experts and external forces don't um, kind of miss out in a way is that this protest did not emerge out of nowhere. We have this long history in Kazakhstan for the past decade when the first protest emerged in, in Jean Aujen in 2011 and they were like violently repressed. Um, there were a lot of victims whose names are still not recovered, and it became a very traumatic experience for a lot of people in Kazakhstan. And when Kazakh Spring emerged so in 2019, and of course, it, it, it was preceded by all sorts of other protests. I would definitely identify 2014, Black Tuesday protest against the devaluation of Tenge, uh, local currency, the 2016 mass protest, uh, anti-land, um, anti basically, uh, uh, um, and well, we call them land protests. Mm. It was basically about not selling the land to the external forces and so on. And then definitely when Nazarbayev resigned, uh, we see the structural change from the economic demands to a more sort of political uh, reforms mm. with, with the emergence of Kazakh Spring. So I've seen a lot of that happening. And obviously this trauma of Jean Audien 2011, it was brought up again by different um, you know activists, especially young activists from Oyang Kazakhstan. They kept on bringing this trauma back and what 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 was really unfolding in front of us right now is all of this resentment, all of these grievances for the past ten years. They are really unbottling, and a lot of people are in solidarity with Janozian because it is such a symbolic place and such a symbolic legacy for Kazakhstan and its contemporary politics in the past decade that people are really really bringing these grievances mm. up. Um, but definitely, the protest is not very far from homogeneous. There are all sorts of forces. Yeah. So, so it's like just like very politically and and culturally almost significant where this uh, protest movement started. Um, like from your your context, the people that you said you've been telegramming with, I mean, I, I guess is there a sense that we might soon see some coherent set of demands, uh, or potentially like around political reform? I mean, it seems so far that we're not really seeing anything coherent yet. Well, I think one coherent demand that we've seen since the, the, the beginning of the day today in Kazakhstan in the morning uh, was the political reform. Of course, different people and different groups um, are demand, like, you know, voicing that demand differently. Because remember, Kazakhstan is about 14 regions that are very different from each other contextually, locally, and that locality should be taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. um, we have three major Republican cities that are also very different. Uh, they have hosted and formed different types of movements in the past two years. Uh, Almaty has been key to that in terms of forming Oyan Kazakhstan and, and Jambalat Mamai's movements, um, which are very, very different, but nevertheless, they did emerge in Almaty. So, um, but the demands, for example, in the West were uh, from the complete resignation of the whole regime, from the president to government to parliament and so on. They didn't just take the, the resignation of the cabinet as such. They, they wanted mm -hmm. more resignations to what Oyan Kazakhstan, for example, is, is demanding is the gradual, not radical, not overnight, but gradual transit to a parliamentary republic, uh, uh, amendments to the constitutions, mm -hmm. further democratization, but very much legal and procedural and formalized, not just like, you know, a coup d'etat or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so it's, it's not like it's, revolutionary, it, it seems, as, as, you're, as you're explaining it. Well, um, and it's really funny because I just wrote a book about um, Oyan Kazakhstan and Kazakh movement, uh, Kazakh Spring movement. And what, they, what I'm opening with is, is one of the respondents saying like, well, we do want to have the spring here, but we don't want to have the Arab spring. We want to have the, the, the uh, Prague spring. And we know that the process should be taken gradually. So that's what the respondent says. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what, what really defines what this particular political movement is, is demanding. They want the gradual democratization rather than 
and they don't but they don't defy revolution they think it's a good cause but but they didn't want the mass violence they didn't want the looting and and rioting happening as it is uh, as it was happening in Almaty today unfortunately now so my well, well, so so for context for for those who you know are not as familiar, I mean, essentially Kazakhstan is a one-party state, and from my you know potentially you know uninformed uh, reading of the situation, one immediate um, implication of this protest movement seems to have been what appears to be like a public cleavage between the former regime and the current president. Is that a fair assessment? Um, well, uh, partially, but, but but still, because there are a lot of people who hope that uh, President Tokayev would be a bit more attentive um, and sort of listening to, to the demands, because that's what he promised in the summer of 2019, when the political protests were emerging quite a lot in, in, in uh, Astana and Almaty, uh, especially with the Kazakh Spring, as I said, that emerged. And he did promise this, this paradigm of the listening states, so there are still some hopes that, you know, maybe President Tokayev will be different from the mm-hmm. previous regime. But he is definitely the product of that same regime. So I'm, I'm, I'm being very skeptical. Whoever comes from that regime, they still play by the same rules, unfortunately, in my, in my assessment, in my evaluation. So Erica Murat, in, in her comments, uh, put what's happening right now in Kazakhstan in like a broader context of certain events in post-Soviet states in recent years, including Belarus and, and Ukraine, which of course begs the question, you know, how will Moscow or how has Moscow responded? Um, what do we know so far, Diana, about how Russia has responded to these protests in Kazakhstan? Well, I've, I've been just reading um, quite unfortunate tweets from some of the Russian um, Russia Today uh, leaders, like uh, Margarita Simonyan, um, who are obviously following the very much, um, you know, uh, the usual card, basically, you know, uh, bring back the Russian language as, as the official language, which is mm. kind of, you know, what is happening in Kazakhstan. So the response is very much, and unfortunately, that's going to be the tipping point. Are they going to try to create similar and play by the similar card? Of sort of like you know what I call ethnic law by by protecting specific Russian-speaking communities, which is very very different. Kazakhstan is not Ukraine. Uh, we have very different and distinct um, you know ethnic um, relations that are very contextual. But unfortunately, that's what we've we've we've, we've been seeing um, from the journalists with whom I spoke from Russia, even the independent ones. Uh, they do seem to to tackle on that idea of sort of like is this anti-Western. Uh, I mean, is this pro-Western, anti-Russian movement in any sort? Um, is there any threat for Russian-speaking populations and so forth? So obviously that's the kind of, in general, the the atmosphere in Russian society or in Russian sphere, if you want to put it. Um, Kremlin still seems to be, I mean, like worried, but but there's no official line yet coming from there. So yeah. it's really hard to define. But what we, I mean, I would say like, you know, what I'm seeing from Margarita Simonian, it seems very, um, yeah, unfortunate with, 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 with what is going on. Yeah, I have seen reporting in English language press that Russian press is is sort of framing this as like a Western plot. Um, Jen, I'd love to bring you in uh, to the conversation. Could you please just introduce yourself and uh, respond to anything you've heard from our, our previous two speakers? Um, thanks. I'm Jen Murtasashvili. I'm a professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, I run a center called the Center for Governance and Markets here at Pitt. And I've been working on the region 
for about 25 years. Um, and my focus is on sort of this intersection between governance and security. So one of the things I really look at is local governance issues. And, and that is actually one of the, the issues um, that we haven't really touched on, uh, you know, both Diana and uh, Erica, who've both written really fabulous books. I'd encourage everyone here to take a look at, um, you know, that are really highly relevant to what's happening right now. And, you know, Diana just had this book come out last year um, toward nationalizing regimes um, that uh, is very, very important on these identity issues and what's driving a lot of these um, topics. Um, so, you know, in terms of governance issues, I think one of the, the reasons you know, in terms of what these protesters want, we can actually look to what the government has promised them over the past several years. And especially since Tokayev became president, he has laid out a reform agenda. And one of the, the questions I think I have is this gap between what he has promised and what he's delivered. And so we're beginning to see a lot of the demands of citizens coalesce around the issues that he's actually said he would deliver to people. So, um, and one of these was decentralization, uh, decentralized a selection, local elections, uh, people having the right to elect their local officials, which they don't currently have. And so when we see that these reforms began, uh, these protests began in Western Kazakhstan, and I think Diana um, laid out quite eloquently the reasons why um, the history of protest in that region uh, the fact that these this is a region that produces the country's energy, um, and it is a poor region, and the fact that these protests came from uh, the increased, uh, you know, the, the price spikes that we saw that is affecting the poor oil-producing regions of the country tells you something, right? So it's, it's more expensive to live in these places. It's uh, more difficult to transport goods in and out of these more remote areas. And so the fact that these protests began here, I think, tells us something about the nature the relationship between the center and the provinces. And, uh, you know, as Diana mentioned, these are very highly contextualized issues. But one of the things that Tokayev has promised over the years is greater autonomy. Um, this has been a, a consistent promise uh, made by presidents, but both by Nazarbayev and by Tokayev about governance reform. And it's every it's always on the top of their agenda, going to make government work more effectively, more efficiently for people. And we clearly see that those leaders haven't delivered on those promises. So uh, that, I think, was the trigger. You know, those fuel, those, uh, you know, protests over fuel prices was the trigger. But the underlying uh, issue, I think, that most of society is facing is this increasing gap um, between uh, you know, the haves and the have nots, the, the kleptocracy really that you see at the, the upper levels. And that that was really ins the insult to people uh, was uh, these gas, gas price spikes in a country that is, you know, mm -hmm. hugely energy uh, has has vast amounts of, of energy. Uh, so, uh, Jen, I, I guess, as I said earlier, something that sort of startled me as, you know, a relatively uninformed outside observer. I'm a journalist. I'm a generalist. Uh, you know, I have seen since covering international affairs since 2003, that government proposals to increase fuel prices more often than not uh, lead to protests no matter where you are in the world. This is like a, a truism that I've seen throughout my career as a journalist. Uh, but again, I, I was very surprised to see just how swiftly these protests moved across a very geographically vast country. And now we have reports of, um, of, of protesters in key government buildings. There was apparently an incident at the airport earlier. 
the details of which are unclear. Um, based on your sort of analysis of the security situation right now, how concerned are you that this may reach sort of a, a violent tipping point? Uh, and as I think Erica said earlier, turn into that moment in which the government uses sort of overwhelmingly violent repression to suppress this dissent? So, uh, you know, this is a really good question, and I think it's one that we are all asking ourselves right now. Um, and I think this is really the key question is we're seeing the security services in different cities, uh, especially the police forces, resign. We've seen a lot of them uh, stand down um, and join the protesters. It's unclear because of the, you know, the lack of Internet access, how widespread that is. But we're seeing it definitely happen in certain cities around the country. Um, the question is, we know that uh, President Takayev has asked for... Um, the CSTO, this is the collective security organization, treaty organization, you know, the Russian-backed uh, security organization. And Tokayev is saying these are terrorists, uh, that, that, that Kazakhstan is suffering from a terrorist attack. And under you know Article 4, uh, when a country faces grave threat, CSTO can send in troops to help bolster the regime. So this is really quite unprecedented. Um, it's not clear at all that, uh, you know, will Russia step in? So basically, Tokayev is throwing away uh, Kazakhstan sovereignty by asking Russian troops to come in and put down these protests uh, by labeling them terrorists. Now, I'm not sure it's necessarily in Russia's interest to step into this. Of course, Russia wants influence here. But does Russia want to send its troops and engage in sort of hand-to-hand -hand combat as we're seeing play out throughout many of these parts uh, of Kazakhstan. I'm not entirely sure. Um, Russia's involved in a lot of military conflicts right now. Does it want to have one inside of Kazakhstan? Um, I think this is a big question. I'd be curious to hear what Erica and Diana have to say about that. But it does, of course, these protests seem very surprising to us because many of us haven't been paying attention uh, to what's been going on in Kazakhstan. But there have been these protests happening, especially since 2019, all over the country. And in fact, you know, there was this report I just shared earlier today, you know, the government shut down public squares throughout the country uh, in December because it feared protests. And so there have been, you know, Diana has has uh, documented these protests very well over the past several years. These things have been occurring. And it just, these cascades are always surprising. Um, the, the triggers are, uh, you know, what triggers this kind of thing always surprises us in any single context. Um, but the fact that it took over so quickly, um, I think that's just sort of the nature of the beast. Uh, so I am going to open this up to questions in just a moment. I do have one uh, last question for me to each of the speakers. Uh, and that is is this, uh, and we'll start with, with Diana and then go to Erica and then back to, to you, Jen. Uh, in the coming you know, days or weeks even, uh, is there any sort of inflection point that will suggest to you how this situation might unfold? Are there any sort of key decisions that may be made either by the government, by protesters, by members of the international community that will influence, that will suggest to you the trajectory of this situation? Uh, and uh, well, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think uh, what, what's major thing right now is really um, what's going to happen with the uh, CSTO because that's, they have their own procedure to follow and mechanism of sort of approval and so on and so forth. For me, that will be uh, one of the major things to watch. Um, but also, as I mentioned, uh, it would be great to see if the regime or the government, the president, 
are ready for the dialogue with certain uh, groups of protesters, definitely those who are self-organized. Um, and, and here, basically, what, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, we need to separate different forces. I'm not saying that the regime should be like, you know, talking to the rioters, but uh, if they can talk to certain people, you know, who have the legitimacy among the the protesters um, who are self-organizing and not rioting and looting, I think for me, that would be like a turning point to see that uh, the situation could be, you know, could be peacefully resolved in some way, at least with the protesters, because just cracking it down would not... Um, yeah, would not lead to long-term perspectives and long-term decisions and solutions. I, I, I guess, um, <clears throat> Dr. Uh, Diana, um, I, I guess my one question on the CTSO uh, uh, question is, so if that clause is invoked, um, could you foresee a situation in which Russia militarily intervenes on behalf of the regime in Almaty? Uh, I'm not a huge fan of, you know, prognosis or making, you know, certain predictions. I'm I'm really working with, with something I have in hand, so I wouldn't make a prediction. I'm sorry. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, Erica, Marat, uh, over to you. In the coming, you know, days or, or weeks, are there any key decision points or inflection points that will suggest to you how this might unfold? So if I were um, at the top of Kazakhstan's political elite structure, I would definitely promise uh, deep political changes, um, a constitutional reform, new parliamentary elections, uh, elected officials and local governments, something really big and promise uh, a different type of political system and kind of rework the consent, um, the contract with the society on what Kazakhstan really is and who it represents. But on the point of CSTO, I do want to be alarmist. Um, Even though CSTO never really intervened in any conflicts, it's basically a defunct organization that does nothing but um, annual drills, military drills with its member states. It never really responded to any conflicts or solved any security crisis uh, on its member states' territories. Um, It does uh, remind me of the situation in Ukraine in 2013 and 14 when Russia uh, used the uh, political chaos in Ukraine to take over Ukraine's territories, uh, Crimea and Donbass. Um, in Kazakhstan, this could be the worst case scenario that um, Russian troops, frankly, or security structures will be in parts of Kazakhstan, especially northern Kazakhstan. And it's not an expensive affair, uh, but it's going to win Putin some points uh, in, in in Russia. And again, I know this is extremely speculative and extremely um, uh, dangerous to make predictions like this, but we can't rule out this kind of scenarios just like we couldn't uh, rule out those kind of scenarios back in, 2000, in the beginning of 2014. So this is quite dangerous for mm. Kazakhstan right now. And, 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 and Jen, I mean, maybe just, just picking up on, on that. I mean, is right now, do you foresee, you know, obviously hard to predict the, the future is a more likely outcome right now, that kind of Russian intervention, worst case scenario, scenario that Erica mentioned, or perhaps that the regime, you know, adopts some of these, you know, demands on political reforms and, or otherwise, like, again, that, that same question of what you'll be looking towards in the next coming days to see how this might shake out. Well, I, I think looking at those kinds of reforms would sort of be the rational thing for this regime to do if it wants to survive. Um, and, and this is where the, the choice that Tokayev is making 
about calling in the CSTO really speaks to his weakness, um, is that rather than engaging with some of the demands of the protesters to, to carry forth on the reform promises that he has already made in the past, right? So if he were to do some of the things that he said he was going to do, we're not talking about, you know, some of the reforms like creating a parliamentary system that's sort of, you know, much bigger issue. But if he were just to carry out some of the reforms he promised in the past, I think he could ameliorate many of the concerns that the protesters have, at least in the short term. But by escalating this and turning to Russia, he's really up the ante and, and told us that his playbook is going to be to crack down. That the when he's talking, calling these protesters terrorists, this is a signal that he's going to use coercive force. So this is inviting the, the kind of worst case scenario that Erica has just outlined um, by getting Russia involved in this conflict. You know, how Russia deals with northern Kazakhstan, a territory that it sort of always claimed. Russia is still, you know, grappling with the fact that Central Asia, uh, the five Central Asian republics are no longer part of the Soviet Union, uh, but especially northern Kazakhstan, where this ethnic Russian population resides. Um, So there's ways both directly and indirectly that Russia can have much a a much stronger influence in those areas. Um, But this is a to me, this is a very, very worrisome because it shows us that Takayev isn't really serious about negotiating politically, that he's relying on his security forces and he sees this as a security problem. And as long as he sees it in those terms, what we're going to have to watch out for is how the security forces themselves respond to the call to use force against the people of, uh, against the people of Kazakhstan. Are they are they going to execute on this president's demand? And I think, you know, if we look at President Takaya versus Nazarbayev, I think to many people in the security forces included that Takaya looks relatively weak compared to their former leader. And let's uh, also, you know, it was only until this morning that uh, Nazarbayev, the former president, who you know was the inaugural, you know, the first president of of Kazakhstan, he stepped down as the Mm -hmm. the national security advisor. That just happened today. So Mm -hmm. Takaya, for the first time, finds himself running this agency and then having the security forces, uh, you know, have allegiance to him. I'm not sure. I I think this is a, a question that we should really watch out for. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to our three panelists. I think this conversation does a great job of setting the context you need to understand events in Kazakhstan as they unfold in the coming days and weeks. Huge thank you to our panelists and to the several thousand people who listened to this as it was being recorded live via Twitter spaces on January 5th. And finally, this conversation was produced in partnership through the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York. The views and opinions expressed in this conversation belong solely to those of us who expressed them. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.